Scripture reading this morning will be from John uh, chapter 4, verses 3 through 15. John chapter 4, verses 3 through 15. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. They left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, uh, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had, uh, have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. As we get started this morning, Jay has asked me to inform those who are to do puppets today that that has been canceled as he will not be back in town in time to do it. He went to Tuscaloosa the past couple of days to help his own mother with some uh, uh, recovery from the tornadoes. Uh, he'll be back this evening, but not in time for puppets. So please understand that that is canceled for today. Uh, with that being said, I, I spent some time this week um, just out of interest looking at some funny how-to manuals on the internet. You realize you can get on the internet and learn how to do anything. And sometimes it's good advice, sometimes it's not so good. I want to share a few of those with you as we get started this morning. This is one of my favorites because this how-to manual tells you how to fix anything, and I am certain there are a number of individuals in this audience who have used these principles that, that theorize that either duct tape or WD-40 can fix anything all based on whether or not it moves. There's also this unique how-to manual that has to do with cleaning your room. Uh, there's probably plenty of people in this audience who are known for uh, this strategy to clean their room, which is simply to just shut the door. And then I like this one as well, how to draw a horse. I believe there are some steps missing in that process, but it, it, somebody may be able to make that leap, but not I. Now, this one all parents should be able to appreciate to some degree. It's how to apply sunscreen to your child. And as the imagery shows you, it compares it to wrestling a crocodile. But finally, I have one more that you're not going to be able to read too much, I, I don't believe. I, I believe it's going to be hard to read the details, so I'm going to go over a few of those with you. But this is my favorite. Now, I mean no offense to anyone with this, but I do not like cats. 
I believe cats are from the devil. And that if any creature is going to make it into heaven, it will not be a cat. But I understand that a great many of you love the feline variety. But I do believe this may be true. This is a guide of how to know if your cat is trying to kill you. It gives these examples. For instance, uh, kind of in the middle, it talks about throwing up grass. And it says that through this painful feeding and purging process, cats prepare their minds and bodies for combat. Of course, over here on the left side, there's a picture of a, uh, of, of a litter box, and it says uh, uh, excessive shoveling of kitty litter. After using the litter box, your cat needless, needlessly kicks litter around, most of it ending up all over the room. This is practice for burying bodies. There's one here on the right side that shows a cat running, and it says sprinting at light speed out of any room you enter. When your cat does this, it's actually a failed ambush. And, and finally, there's the, in the top right corner a picture of a dead animal being brought by the cat. And it says, Bring, brings you dead animals. This isn't a gift. It's a warning. <laughs> in other words, this how-to guide shows you that everything your cat does is an indication that it wants to kill you. And I'm not so sure this one isn't off base. Now, I share these humorous, humorous how-to guides because for many of us, the greatest hurdle to going and doing is figuring out how. And I think sometimes we make it more complicated than it has to be. And so this morning, as we continue our examination of Jesus' life for the expressed purpose of learning how to go and do like Him, I want to examine the events that will unfold in John chapter 4, not just in verses 3 through 15, but through the majority of that chapter down through verse 42. And they're all about the time when He interacted with a Samaritan woman by a well. And most of the time when we study this chapter, or at least when I study this chapter, I have a tendency to focus on the theological implications of the story, particularly the, the deeper meaning of, of living water in the context of this story, or, or the implications of worshiping God in spirit and in truth, because Jesus says some powerful theological statements in the midst of this interaction. And so oftentimes I'll focus on the theological implications of this account. Or more recently, I've, I've focused on the cultural implications of the account and how there's a dynamic between a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman and how Jesus' interaction with this individual speaks to the, the racial, cultural, ethnic issues we deal with today. But this morning, as we turn our attention to John chapter 4 and the interaction between Jesus and this Samaritan woman, I want to try to look at it from a very practical standpoint. I want to examine this text as a how-to guide for going and doing. See, I believe there are some very practical steps for our mission 
that can come by just examining how Jesus led this individual whom he had never met prior to this day to the point of belief without ever performing a single miracle. See, oftentimes when we think about Jesus and, and his ability to lead people to faith, we, we categorize it in conjunction with the miracles he performs because his miracles were intended to confirm his message. But he performs no miracles here. He does nothing out of the ordinary that you and I can't do. And so we turn to John chapter 4 to provide some how-to information when it comes to our, the evangelistic component of going and doing. And I want to start with this. I want you to notice that the first thing Jesus does is he created an intentional interaction. In John chapter 4 and verse 4, we're told that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now what's interesting to me is that's not exactly true because there were three different routes an individual could take when they're traveling from the southern city of Jerusalem up to the northern territory of Galilee. Now, passing directly through Samaria was the most direct route. It was the shortest route. You could complete that route in three days' time of walking. But it was not your only option. An individual could choose to take a Mediterranean route. See, Samaria was this territory located between Judea in the south, where Jerusalem was, lo was uh, located, and Galilee in the north, where Nazareth and Capernaum and, and this region that Jesus conducted most of his ministry was located. You could pass directly through Samaria, or you could choose to head west out of Jerusalem. Head west out of Jerusalem and go to the Mediterranean Sea and up the coastline and bypass Samaria on the west and enter Galilee from that area. Now that would add a few days. That would add a lot of miles. But you could, in effect, avoid Samaria that way. You could also, in, in more, uh, more, um, more often used, was an eastern route. You could travel east out of Jerusalem through the Jericho region, cross over the Jordan River into what it would be considered the area of Perea, and you could travel up the eastern shoreline of the Jordan River and cross back over into Galilee when you bypassed Samaria. A lot of Jews did that because the Jews did not like Samaritans. And so they would rather travel more days, take more miles, and spend more time just to avoid going through Samaria. So Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria in the sense of it was a requirement. He could have gone a different route if he really wanted to. But maybe the have to go through Samaria is not so much talking about his geographic requirement as it is a spiritual requirement. You see, later in John chapter 4, when the disciples were encouraging Jesus to eat some of the food they just went into town to get, he said this, and you'll see it in verse 34 of John 4, 
My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Then in the very next verse, John chapter 4, verse 35, He told His disciples to lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. These latter two statements, they indicate that Jesus came to Samaria on purpose. He was in that town and at that well that day because he knew there were souls to be harvested right there. He understood that the will of his father was for him to seek and save the lost, which included people in Samaria. So Jesus intentionally went to Samaria. Jesus intentionally interacted with this woman that day because that was a soul that needed saving. And here's the application for you and I. If we're going to go and do like Jesus, then we have to be intentional about interacting with lost people. I often bring up this passage in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 that speaks about seizing opportunity. It says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Now that terminology right then and there is telling us, be wise in the way you act toward those who aren't believers, those who are outside the faith or outside the church. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. It goes on to say, make the most of every opportunity. And in verse 6, Paul continues by saying, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. When I look at these two verses from Colossians chapter 4, there, in my mind, is an element of intentionality lying behind these instructions. Because Paul is instructing Christians to be opportunistic when it comes to our interactions with those outside the church. Now think about what that means. Such intentionality may mean that you have to step outside your comfort zone. Such intentionality may mean that you have to make deliberate decisions about when and where you're going to interact with people. Such intentionality may mean that you have to plan your interactions. Are you intentional about interacting with your coworkers so that you can share the good news with them? Are you intentional about interacting with your neighbors so that you can share the gospel with them? Are you intentional about talking to your friends at school? Are you intentional about where you dine? Who cuts your hair? About what teller you go to at the bank? Are you intentional about your interactions so that they can create an opportunity for you to share the good news with somebody? See, I know among this audience today there are some of you who go to the same restaurant so frequently that you're on a first-name basis with the waiter or waitress or owner. Why not use that as a means to share the good news? Some of you see your hairstylist or barber, whichever one you utilize, you see them on such a frequent basis that you know them. 
Do you utilize that as an opportunity to talk about Jesus? Some of you frequent shops and businesses with such frequency that you're on a first-name basis. You see, we have these opportunities for intentional interactions just like Jesus. In fact, you may not remember this, but just last year, actually 2019, I keep forgetting we're already in a new year because that one was so long. Back in 2019, we launched a program called Who Is My Neighbor? And it was built on this principle. Ben still has copies of those documents, and I believe they're online, correct? All of that information is online, and it's intended to give you a guide of how to interact for the sake of evangelism with those you come in contact with the most. If we're going to go and do like Jesus, we're going to have to get intentional about our interactions with people. And we're going to have to seize opportunities to share that good news with those we come in contact with. But you know what else we're going to have to do? When we look at the story of Jesus here in John chapter 4, we see that he made a sacrificial investment. Now, this might be easy to overlook, but I want you to notice what's said in John chapter 4 and verse 6. We're informed that Jesus was wearied from his journey when he sat down at that well in Samaria. Now, that term translated wearied is referring to being tired, to being exhausted, to being fatigued. It's the same word you're going to see utilized by Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28 when he said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's the same word that Jesus will utilize in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 3 when he commended the church in Ephesus for not growing weary in the face of persecution. We understand what it means to be weary. Some of you might be weary right now. We've been there. We've experienced that, and, and oftentimes I'll, I'll reference this particular descript, description of Jesus' physical state to point out that he knows what it's like to be you and I. But today I want you to notice that despite being weary, Jesus initiated a conversation with this woman. He asked her to draw him a drink from the well in verse 7, and you may think that's no big deal. If I'm weary and thirsty, I would ask somebody to get me a drink too. I wouldn't have a problem speaking up for that. But I want you to notice. I want you to notice what happens after Jesus re requests a drink. The woman expresses her surprise over the fact that he asked for her help in verse 10. And that's when Jesus said this, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now I want you to think for a moment. If all Jesus wanted to do was quench his thirst, then all he needed to say was how desperately thirsty he was. But Jesus didn't do that. He made an intriguing statement about living water that was sure to pique her curiosity. 
Jesus knew what he was doing. In that moment, he intentionally created an evangelistic conversation with this woman, despite the fact that he was exhausted. You see, if I was in Jesus' shoes, most of the time we want to examine what Jesus would do if he was in our shoes. But if I was at that well, and I was experiencing the fatigue that Jesus was, and I was interacting with that woman, I'm not so sure I would have prolonged the conversation like that. I imagine in, in my own weakness and in my own unfortunate selfishness, I would have simply asked for the water and I would have been too exhausted to invest the time to have that evangelistic conversation. What about you? Would you have, like Jesus, despite your physical condition, been willing to take that conversation further? You see, Jesus makes a sacrifice here. He's exhausted. He's thirsty. He's hungry. He's worn out. But he's never too weary to share good news. Have you ever missed an opportunity to share the gospel because you were just too tired in that moment? You just needed some time for yourself. Or, or, or you, you, you didn't need this to, conversation to go on any longer, so you didn't go there. See, Jesus is making a sacrifice here. He's in making an investment in the life of this woman because he knows that what really matters is not his physical fatigue. What really matters is her spiritual salvation. See, going and doing will always require a sacrificial investment. It may be the sacrifice of your time or your energy or your resources, but it's always going to require some sort of sacrifice. It's in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8 that Paul said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul is saying that there's nothing he didn't sacrifice to know Christ. And I find that very interesting in light of another passage. One that I, I failed to put on the screen. It's 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3. And in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3, John said, By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. So follow my line of reasoning. Paul says there's nothing he didn't sacrifice in order to know Christ. And John says you can't know Christ without keeping his commandments. So in saying that there's nothing he didn't sacrifice to know Christ, Paul is ultimately saying there's nothing he didn't sacrifice to keep Christ's commands. And one of those commands is to go and do. You see, we need to wrap our minds around the fact that going and doing is going to take some sacrificial investment. It's not always going to be simple. It's not always going to be short. It's not always going to be easy. 
but the benefits of that investment are always going to be worthwhile. You see, when we look here in John chapter 4, we, we see Jesus from a practical standpoint creating an intentional interaction and making a sacrificial investment. But he goes beyond that. He overlooked controversial traits. You know, there are three characteristics about the individual with whom Jesus interacted that would cause most Jewish men to avoid her. The first is the fact that she's a Samaritan. You can look there in John chapter 4 and verse 7. It refers to her as a woman from Samaria. And in verse 9, we're given this little narrative, parenthetical explanation that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. As I've mentioned in previous sermons, the, the Jews viewed the Samaritans as an impure race because the Samaritans descended from interracial marriages that occurred between the Jews and Canaanites after the Babylonian or during the Babylonian captivity. You see, when the Jews were escorted off in the captivity in Babylon, there were a few that were left in the promised land. Those that remained broke Mosaic covenant and intermarried with the people of the land. Now, God wasn't so much opposed to the interracial part. It was more the interreligious aspect of those marriages that he didn't like. And that he forbid. Because the Samaritans then became this mixed people who, who uh, believed in Yahweh, but sprinkled in some pagan beliefs with it. They did not have a pure faith or pure religion. And by this point in history, you can even see it in this woman's conversation with Jesus, they were no longer observing worship the temple in Jerusalem. They had set up their own place in Samaria so that they didn't have to go down there. They weren't even worshiping correctly anymore. So the Jews did not like Samaritans because they were this mixed hybrid faith. They were not pure anymore. And the Jews believed that associating with the Samaritans might make them ceremonially unclean. In fact, that parenthetical statement we have that says that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, it actually can be translated, Jews do not use utensils in common with Samaritans. Now think about what Jesus has requested of this woman, that she draw water out of that well. She would be utilizing her own utensil to fetch water for Jesus that if he then utilized from a Jewish perspective would make him unclean. Now that's not something that comes from Mosaic law. That was just a tradition among the Jews. Jesus never failed to obey any law. But Jesus had no problem throwing aside customs when they impeded the gospel. And so here, the first strike against this individual is the fact that she's a Samaritan. The second strike against this individual, the second controversial trait, is the fact that she's a woman. We're told in John chapter 4, verse 7, specifically that she's a woman, but I want you to notice down in verse 27, 
when the disciples returned from town, when they, they went to get food while Jesus was sitting at the well, when they returned from town, they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Not a Samaritan, a woman. Their offense was the fact that he was talking to someone of the opposite gender. Now you need to understand the mindset of Jews at this time. In that day and age, women were viewed as morally inferior by some of the teachers of the law. Now we all know that's not true. That's just the mindset they had. And so because of that mindset, Jewish men avoided speaking with women in public, even their own wives. They had this mindset toward women that was very chauvinistic, that was very... I've lost my word already, but you can make one up for yourself because you get it. They were, the disciples were surprised that Jesus is talking to a woman, especially since he's a rabbi. That's a big no-no. So this individual at the well, she's controversial because she's a Samaritan. She's controversial because she's a woman. And third, she's controversial because she's in an immoral relationship. You'll see down in verse 9 and 10 that Jesus asks her to summon her husband and she says she has no husband. And as the conversation goes on, it's revealed that she does not have a husband because she's been married five times and she's not married to the man with whom she is currently in a relationship. Now we don't know if those previous marriages ended due to death or divorce, but we do know that her current relationship was uh, immoral in the eyes of the people in that day because the teachers of the law, the rabbis, the traditional rabbis of the day, disapproved of more than three marriages, even though they were legally permissible. So she was looked down on. And this seems to be reflected in the fact that she is at the well at this time. You may have noticed back in John chapter 4 and verse 6, we're told that this interaction occurred during the sixth hour of the day. The sixth hour is equivalent to noon. This is the peak of the day. Typically, people fetched water in the early morning or at dusk in order to avoid the heat. It was unusual for somebody at the, in the middle of the day when the sun is at its peak to come out to get water. The other thing that is typical of fetching water in this culture is that it is done by women. But usually, they go in groups. It's unusual for a woman to go by herself. The fact that this individual came by herself at a time when few people would be going to the well, it may be an indication that she felt a sense of shame and was avoiding contact with other people. But here's the thing. She's a Samaritan, she's a woman, and she's in an immoral relationship. But none of those things keep Jesus from talking to her. He did not let her gender, her race, or her past dictate her worth. 
And for you and I, as we look at this story and we consider the example of Jesus, we have to realize that going and doing necessitates that we look at people like Jesus looked at people. See, I'm afraid sometimes we, we can handpick who we're going to serve or who we're going to share the gospel with based on circumstances that they may not even have control over. And yet here we are looking at Jesus, and, and, and here is Jesus at this well interacting with someone that based on the culture of his day he should have no contact with. But he's overlooking every negative characteristic, every controversial trait, because she's still a soul underneath there, a soul that God loves. Let's not forget John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world, not for God so loved the people that believe in him, not for God so loved the people that obey him, not for God so loved the people that will follow him, God so loved the world, and the world includes people that reject him, people that deny him, people that abuse him, people that hate him. God so loved the world, and the expectation is in our going and doing that we're going to love people like God loved people. And that means we're never going to pick and choose who we're going to share the gospel with or who we're going to serve based on circumstances like gender, like race, like their past. Because Jesus overlooked those very things when he met with this woman. I also want you to notice here in John chapter 4 that Jesus conversed with directional dialogue. And I'll explain what I mean. If you look here in the interaction between Jesus and this Samaritan woman, every time Jesus speaks, he's trying to move her in a specific direction. You'll see in verses 9 and 10, when the Samaritan woman posed a cultural question based on Jesus' interest in her help getting a drink, Jesus utilized that as an opportunity to present a spiritual truth by telling her what she could use his help in obtaining. So when she expresses her surprise that he wants her help getting water, he takes that as an opportunity to talk to her about living water, which in this context is a reference to eternal life. Then in verses 20 through 24, when the Samaritan woman changed the subject from her personal life after Jesus brought up the whole husband situation, when she changed that subject by asking a semi-theological question about the right worship venue, Jesus utilized that as an opportunity to present a spiritual truth by telling her what true worship entails. You see, if we look at the situation here, takes everything she says and finds a way to connect it back to the gospel. He's directing the conversation towards spiritual matters the entire time. And by the end of their conversation, by the conclusion of it, when you get down to around verse 24, excuse me, I'm sorry, verse 19, the woman now brings up the Messiah herself. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. 
And it's at this point that Jesus no longer needs to direct the conversation because she had inevitably arrived at the topic that every Bible study must get to. And that is a conversation about Christ. See, the whole time, Jesus is constantly steering the conversation towards spiritual matters so that in the end, he would have the opportunity to reveal himself to her as the Messiah. We need to understand that our conversations with people have a tremendous impact. What we talk about has great influence over how they're going to perceive us. When you're conversing with people, do you try to find ways to bring up your faith? Do you try to find ways to communicate some spiritual truth? Do you try to find ways where you can direct them toward Jesus? We read from Colossians chapter 4 earlier where it talks about our, our speech being seasoned with salt. There's intentionality in that. But I also think about 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 where we're instructed to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in us. Those instructions imply directional dialogue. It indicates that we should be prepared to defend our faith and that means that we must be willing and able to converse about spiritual matters. I can't go, really explain how you do that on every topic. But I'm certain each and every one of us can find ways to bring up Christ more frequently than we do. You want to know how to go and do? Create intentional interactions. You want to know how to go and do? Overlook controversial traits. You want to know how to go and do? Make a sacrificial investment. You want to know how to go and do? Converse with directional dialogue. You want to know how to go and do? Let me give you one more. Pinpoint personal applications. We've already noted how Jesus brought up the subject of the Samaritan woman's husband, and she immediately responded, I have no husband. I find that interesting because her response is frank, it's evasive, it's terse. Her response is unique when compared to her previous statements because all of her other responses are much longer by comparison. So if we go back to John chapter 4 and verse 9, when she expressed shock at Jesus' request for water, she spoke 11 words in Greek, 17 in the English of the ESV. In verse 11 and 12, when she responded to Jesus' statement about living water, she spoke 42 words in Greek, 44 in the English of the ESV. In verse 15, when she requested that Jesus give her living water, she spoke 13 words in Greek, 20 in the English of the ESV. But in verse 17, when she said, I have no husband, she used three words in the Greek, four in the English of the ESV. This is a touchy subject for her. 
She didn't want to talk about it. She tried to wrap that conversation up as fast as she could. You'll even notice that as soon as Jesus revealed the truth behind her no-husband situation, she immediately found something else to talk about. This is where she didn't want to go. But this is where Jesus knew they had to go. Jesus was not reluctant to bring up this situation. He pinpointed the area of this woman's life where she really needed spiritual healing. And he specifically addressed it. Do you realize that more often than not, Jesus did that? Think about the rich young ruler. Jesus didn't hesitate to get to the issue at the heart of that individual. Think about Pilate. Pilate had an issue with truth, and Jesus didn't hesitate to speak to it. Now, you may be thinking that Jesus was able to pinpoint this particular issue in her life because he could peer into the hearts and minds of people. In fact, his ability to divinely know this information about her caused her to say, I perceive that you are a prophet. And what you're probably thinking is, I can't do that. That was a specific ability of Jesus as God in the flesh. Now, it may be true that Jesus was able to discover this woman's spiritual needs quickly because of his divine knowledge, but that doesn't mean you and I are incapable of discovering the same in people today. It'll take us longer. It may require a bit more prying. But if we're going and doing like Jesus, then we need to make the salvific work of Jesus personal for people too. This scenario made me ponder James chapter 5 and verse 16, a passage that is probably quite familiar to many of you, where it says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. This passage is specifically written to Christians who are to pray for one another and to confess their sins to one another. But that part about healing stood out to me. And there were three big takeaways I have from John, James chapter 5 and verse 16. One is that everybody needs healing. The passage instructs us to confess our sins, and everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet, therefore, everyone needs healing. Every person you come in contact with is hurting somewhere, some way, somehow. And they need healing. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Another takeaway from me, something that we don't talk about nearly as much, is that healing necessitates the confession of sin. An acknowledgement that you are a sinner is the only first step to healing. In fact, 1 John chapter 1 talks about that. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We have to be willing to acknowledge 
that we're hurting and that we need healing. And part of our going and doing assignment will include us helping people discover that they need healing. Because that's the third big takeaway. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. The whole one another aspect here. It makes you and I as believers, it makes us agents in the healing process. We don't bring about the healing, but we are helpers in the healing because we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Because we are here as ambassadors for Christ. And so here in this interaction with the Samaritan woman, Jesus, the one who ultimately brings about our healing, he pinpoints where this woman's hurting the most, spiritually speaking. He pinpoints where she needs healing, and he doesn't fail to address it. You and I are going to have to do the same. I know I've gone quite long today. But let me conclude with this quick illustration. A young salesman was disappointed about losing a big sale, and as he talked with the sales manager, he lamented, I guess it just proves that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And the manager told him, your job is not to make the horse drink. Your job is to make him thirsty. I share that with you today because as we talk about going and doing like Jesus, our responsibility is to create thirst in people. And in order for us to accomplish that, we're going to have to have some intentional interactions. We're going to have to make some sacrificial investments. We're going to have to create some directional dialogue. We're going to have to overlook some characteristics that are controversial. And we're going to have to pinpoint some areas where personal application of Jesus' healing power can be made. Today, if you are a Christian, this message ought to prick your heart to be a better goer and be a better doer. It should give you some strategies for how you can be more effective at going and doing. If you're not a Christian today, you may be in need for some healing. This message hasn't spoken to where you need healing, but let me conclude it by telling you how you can receive healing. If you'll confess your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, if you'll repent of your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins, you can be healed. And there may be some here today that need to make that decision. And if so, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing. Uh...